You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, winner of the Share Care Emmy Award for Social Storytelling and the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and today we've got topics in exercise physiology with my favorite exercise physiologist out there, my friend and my colleague at NASM, Fabio Camano. What's up, Fabio? Hi, Rick. It's always good to see you, and thank you once again for having me on your show. Oh, it is a pleasure. So, Fabio, just so you know, I tell people this all the time. When I go to conferences, there are generally two people that I look for that I want to attend their sessions. It is always Dr. Lynn Kravitz and Fabio Kamana. So <laughs> if, if, if I'm at a conference, and recently uh, I saw you in Thailand, so at Asia Fitness yeah. Conference, and we got to hang out for a little bit, and I got to sit in on a few of your sessions. And that's when I realized that you haven't been on the show in a while. So, <laughs> so I'm happy to have you back. Um, just want you to take a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, who you are, what you do, your background, all that stuff. And then we're going to chat. Yeah, well, very briefly. So I am an exercise physiologist. I teach at San Diego State University in our School of Exercise and Nutritional Sciences. And I'm a faculty instructor for NASM. How's that for short and sweet? I love it. I love it. Enough is enough already. So <laughs> that says everything we need to say. Look, so here's my question. And we chatted for a moment about this uh, before we got on together. And a few days ago, I had posted on my Instagram account, uh, uh, me inserting my continuous glucose monitor. So my CGM into my arm that measures my glucose. Um, the reason I do that is because I'm a diabetic. But I was at the gym the other day, and there was a guy who saw my my sensor in my arm, and he said, oh, hey, I have one too. And I said, are you diabetic? And he goes, no. And I thought, man, this is becoming more and more popular that people are wearing these continuous glucose monitors in their arms. And I will say this, a lot of times they have to be via prescription. So there are some commercial-based companies that are providing these for people. So my question to you is, if you don't have diabetes, why or what would be the benefit of a continuous glucose monitor potentially? Well, you know... <sighs> Probably nothing that would be of real relevance because our body takes care of that for ourselves. I mean, if you're a diabetic, you have a underlying pathology where something like that is needed to help you monitor. But the body's normal physiology will take care of itself. Now, it does bring up some interesting points. And I'm really going to talk, talk, touch on two topics here. Mm -hmm. So number one, Rick, is the way that glucose moves into a cell, right? So let's just talk about the muscle cell. Well, at rest and during exercise, there are two different pathways involved. So at, during rest, we rely on insulin, right? And you're familiar with that insulin-mediated glucose uptake pathway, right? Where insulin essentially functions as a key that unlocks a lock and that allows glucose to move into the cell, right? But now think about what happens during exercise. You know, exercise is a catabolic event where we're breaking down stored energy, right? Well, insulin is an anabolic hormone that actually tries to build up our stores. So they're kind of antagonists of each other. So anytime we get into activate our fight or flight, so think of exercise as one example, we intentionally suppress insulin, right? Because we want to break down stored energy to make it available. And so 
the question then becomes, well, if I'm working out and I need my muscle cells to be refueled, for example, I'm drinking a sports drink, I'm eating an energy bar. If I don't have insulin during a workout, how does glucose get into my muscle cell? Well, this is where we shift to a different pathway. A pathway that many other cells use at rest is what the muscles end up using during exercise, right? Mm -hmm. So there is the opportunity that because this pathway is very efficient, that during exercise, especially if it's prolonged, your blood sugar levels could start to drop. And you could make the argument that in time, would that hinder your performance? Yes. But I would say that would take several hours before that becomes relevant because you've got enough glycogen in your muscle cells for most of us to fuel 90 to 120 minutes of work. And most people aren't exercising in the gym for that long. So that might be one argument. Well, I don't want my blood sugar to drop because it's going to impair my performance. My rebuttal to that is, how long are you in the gym for? That's my first one. The second one comes down to what happens during anaerobic work. So as you know, that the intensity of your fight and flight response will also determine the amount of sympathetic nervous activation that you're going to get, right? Which in turn affects your hormones like epinephrine. So if you have a, if you're doing intervals and you're doing very intense bouts of intervals, think of true hip training. You're doing a very intense interval. Chances are, you're going to get elevated levels of epinephrine, either because of the event or in anticipation of the event. And that may force the liver to dump a lot more glucose into the, into the blood. And remember, we only have a small amount of glucose in the blood at any point of time. And so the liver is forced to kind of accelerate its breakdown and dump it into the blood in anticipation of this extreme stress. But while we're actually doing that sprint, so called the 60 second interval, the rate at which you're dumping glucose into the blood and the rate at which the muscle cells are taking that glucose out of the blood are not paired, which means you're dumping faster than you're taking mm. into the cells, which means during that sprint interval or kind of following that, like towards the tail end of that sprint interval, your blood sugar will actually spike. And then as you go to the recovery, your muscles will then say, let's gobble up that glucose. And then you'll see your blood sugar kind of crash. And you actually have a very erratic blood sugar right. response during an interval workout because of the nature of the work to recovery. And if someone was saying, I need to kind of set a threshold where I don't want my number to get this high or this low, this may be a source of confusion for them, right? This is just a natural physiological event that's happening as a result of you going from intense work to recovery to intense work to recovery. It's just the liver responding to this kind of perception or this increased release of epinephrine, and it just does a big dump. And that would be, if you were thinking I had a drink, you'd be probably kind of like a cat chasing a mouse. You'd be always chasing yourself saying, blood sugar is too high, blood sugar is too low. What the hell am I doing? <laughs> right. I could just say, let your body's physiology take care of itself. Ordinarily, we don't need to worry about any of this unless you're that athlete's been out there for several hours where glycogen depletion is becoming an issue and the liver is not able to meet the demands of what the muscle is pulling out of the blood. That might be my only reason where there would be some value in that. Other than that, I would say your body's going to do just, your body will do a just fine job taking care of its of blood sugar levels. Gotcha. That's kind of where I was, uh, where I was on this, but I figured talking to you who has a much stronger background in physiology, I mean, I have no background in physiology. So, so coming to you with that question, ladies and gentlemen, this is Fabio Camana, who is an NASM faculty, and he's also a professor at San Diego State University who is joining us today. And we're going to be talking about this. I want to speak to what you just said, um, just because uh, this morning I, I woke up, my blood sugar was within range. 
And then I went to a 6 a.m. jujitsu class. I'd measured my blood sugar as soon as class was over. And it was in the in the mid to low one fifty, uh, sorry, one hundreds when I woke up. After I did jujitsu, uh, it was at two twenty one, and that's a fasted state. I didn't eat before I went, so a lot of people in this, what you're talking about, they're wondering why did my blood sugar shoot up? I did a really intense anaerobic activity, and now I've got this really high blood sugar. Uh, and trying to figure out why. So what you're saying is that this is all part of that process of when you're doing anaerobic exercise, you have this hepatic dump of glucose into the bloodstream and you haven't used it yet. So you get this spike in glucose. Yeah. All right. Because that's where I was. I was all over the place with, uh, yeah. and like you say, if you just measure everything while you're working out at intensity, then you'll see it pretty erratic. Um, but what that exercise eventually does is it increases usually an insulin sensitivity and exactly. it also will end up over time lowering your your blood sugar and if if you compound that over time then it will lower a1c for those who are diabetic yeah. uh all right so i have another question and this is a question that i hear quite a bit and not as much as i used to but it was such a a buzz for such a long time, which is about the hormone cortisol mm -hmm. and cortisol being really labeled as not just a stress hormone, but almost as a bad hormone. So can it be a stress hormone and not be bad? That it actually is both. It is not a bad hormone. Okay. You know, biologically cortisol is just doing what it's intended to do. We've chosen to alter our lifestyles. And as a result of that, cortisol has now been vilified. So let's just kind of explain, you know, some of the benefits of cortisol, because without cortisol, you would have a very hard time surviving, right? Cortisol is to some degree, you, you hear of people, you know, taking corticosteroids, right? Yes. You hear of people taking cortisone shots, right? So cortisol is a immunosuppressant and it is an anti-inflammatory and that has very important roles. When we get done with our workouts, we suffer a acute injury, we have what's called an inflammatory process, right? And that's a very normal biological response. A lot of people get screwed, you know, freaked out when they hear acute inflammation. The word inflammation scares them, and actually it shouldn't. It's a very normal healing process to help restore homeostasis. So when that process takes place and the recovery or the repair is kind of you know, moving along, at some point we want to turn that off. And that's a very important role of cortisol. In the short term, cortisol actually helps shut off our acute inflammatory process so that it doesn't become a chronic process, right? That's what we're intending to, it to do. The other beautiful thing about cortisol that a lot of people don't realize is that cortisol is a glucose sparer. You know, cortisol is actually one of its very important roles is to make sure that you don't run out of blood sugar. Because if you do, you're kind of screwed because remember, red blood cells, Rick, can only fuel off of glucose. They don't have mitochondria. So if you don't have blood glucose, remember, we only have small amounts of blood glucose in the blood at any point of time. And a lot of people think, well, can't I just keep replenishing that? Well, here's the, the most important thing that I think pra fitness practitioners should understand. When you put glucose into a muscle cell, it can never get out. It is either used immediately as a fuel or it's stored as glycogen until it is used as a fuel. The liver is the organ that is only capable of releasing glucose into circulation. 
The problem with the liver, it's not a very big tank. You know, it stores a good density, 50 grams per kilogram of tissue, but the liver is only one to two kilograms in mass, which means most of us don't have much more than maybe 100 grams of liver glycogen. And so that can get depleted pretty quickly. So cortisol is job. That's why we see cortisol levels elevate in the morning. As we're waking up, your liver tank is kind of getting progressively emptied. And so cortisol levels go up to try and spare what remaining glycogen you have in the liver tank so that you don't run out of blood sugar. I mean, sure, we can make it, but sometimes that's the last resort, right? So cortisol has a lot of noble roles in the human body that actually help us survive. Why we vilify cortisol is because if cortisol remains elevated indefinitely, then it's when it starts to have what I call the hormonal matrix effect, where it starts to negatively impact a lot of those other wonderful hormones that we try and influence to transform our bodies. You know, it can negatively impact estrogen, testosterone, growth hormone, thyroid stimulating hormone, leptin, ghrelin, everything that's reliant, you know, involved in transforming us from fat to fit, right? So that's the unfortunate differentiation is that long-term elevations of cortisol can become problematic, but short-term little spikes of cortisol are actually a very normal and healthy thing and actually a very noble thing. Now, we can control our cortisol levels because at the end of the day, stress, however it's manifested, creates a physiological response. I always teach my students, I say, stress is a physiological response to a mental perception. And if we can learn to, you know, change our perception of stress, we can actually control our cortisol levels. Hmm. Can, we, can you expand on that? What, that? what that means, what that could look like for us as fitness professionals or for how we interact with our clients? Yeah, well, I mean, let's think of it in an exercise you know, example. Think of a you, you are a detrained person, you go to the gym for the very first time. And I put you through this workout. Let's call it a fixed workout, workout A. And because you can de deconditioned, that's a very stressful workout for you. So you're going to have a very significant stress response, including cortisol. But let's say now I have you, tr I train you for the next six to eight weeks and you do that same workout, right? You're going to notice that your stress response is going to be much lower to that same workout. You might not have the same elevation of blood pressure, the same elevation of heart rate. You might not, you know, sweat as much because your body has conditioned itself. You have adapted to the training stimulus, right? And so that's a, an adaptation process that happens physiologically. Well, we also can say you can do this with your mind. You know, think of it just from a standpoint that we talk about muscle-mind or mind-muscle connections, right? Mm. Um, I don't know if you've been watching on National Geographic. They've had Chris Helmsworth doing his TV show, Limitless. I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, and he, they actually, in the very first episode, they were teaching him to, to kind of confront his fears. And they actually, you know, one of the, they have to do several stressful events. Like they literally put him underwater like they do with, you know, with the Navy SEALs and put him through a lot of tasks where he feels like he's going to drown. And then they also put him on a tower, 900 foot tower. And she, the lady who's working with him, you know, she's a neuroscientist, I believe. And she's working with him to try and help him, you know, change his perception of stress. And one of the easiest things we tell people to do is to breathe. You know, think of the box breathing, right? The four, 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 if you've ever heard of that. It's, you know, four second inhalation through your nose, four second breath hold, four second exhalation, four second breath hold until you start your next inspiration. And that's all to do what? Aimed at A, distracting you a little bit from the, the perception or the processing of that stress event. 
But B, it also activates your parasympathetic nervous system, which helps calm down the body. And they actually had, they were doing some real life monitoring. They were monitoring his breathing rate and his heart rate and things. And as he started just focusing, he was using some one word mantras and he started breathing. You watched his heart rate drop dramatically. And that mm. would be indicative of his stress hormones coming down. So we use mental imagery. We use self-talk. We can use breathing techniques. So there's a mind muscle and a muscle mind where progressive relaxation a lot of things we can do to help control our stress our stress response and you think of our, our certified wellness coaching rick you know the the yeah. uh, program that you were very involved in you know we have obviously we had a, a stanford researcher there kelly mcgonagall you know in her book she talks about the upside of stress and i, I think that's yes. a fascinating book because she does talk about how it's really just a mental perception and stress could be our friend, right? It helps us persevere. It helps make us stronger. It helps us make, makes us more resilient. And so if we learn that stress is a mental perception and we learn how to look at stress as something that is helping us biologically become stronger and we change our perception of it, we can actually control our physiological response to stress and we can make that chronic stress go away, which could in turn make us healthy and live longer. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Fabio Camana, who is joining us today as an exercise physiologist, a professor at San Diego State University, and uh, he's a faculty member at NASM. And so I'm happy to have you with us, Fabio. And I want to dig in a little bit more about some of this stuff. So we, we're talking about using, uh, having a physiological response to a perception, a mental perception. So, and then you said there's, there's sympathetic and there's parasympathetic nervous systems. Can you break down what those are for us so that we have a better understanding? Cause people probably hear these things all the time. And I think it's important for the audience yeah. to be like, oh, that's what that means. Yeah. So when we talk about our human body, I always use an analogy when I'm teaching my students of a computer. I use the idea of a computer software and a computer hardware. And I talk about how generally the computer is controlled by the software. Your software runs the hardware. Well, we can use that analogy in the human body that we have a software system. And one of the software systems we can talk about is our nervous system, right? And then, of course, our hardware would be our muscular system, our skeleton, things of that nature. So our nerves essentially are telling our muscles what to do, right? Contract, lengthen, shorten, hold that isometric contraction. Now, generally, when we think about our all the activities, our, keeping our physiology alive and actually all the activities of daily living we do, fortunately for us, we don't have to consciously think about all of it because if we had to think about every little detail, we would probably overwhelm our brain and we'd never be able to get out of the chair, right? We'd be kind of just thinking, okay, uh, I've got my heart, I've got to keep my heart pumping. I've got to keep breathing. We don't have to worry about that because it is regulated through what we call the autonomous nervous system, which means it's on autopilot. And within that autonomic nervous system, we can kind of further separate that into two kind of subcategories. What we call the parasympathetic, which goes by many names. Sometimes it's called the rest and repair, the rest and recover, the rest, digest and recover. It has many names, but you can see those names are all indicative of a relaxed state. So for example, Rick, you and I right now, theoretically are in a very relaxed, calm state. So I would assume we're both under the dominance of the parasympathetic nervous system. This is our state of relax. And this is where we should be spending most of our day, right? It's like driving your car. You wanna keep your RPM somewhat low because if you're running the car with RPMs all the time, you break down the engine, right? Well, but the human body also has this other system because let's be honest, we have threats to our very existence. 
And so throughout our day, we perceive stresses. What we see, what we hear, what we feel, you know, our environment around us, things of that nature, right? And so our body has to respond to that for reasons of, or for purposes of survival. And sometimes that requires us to enter this other state, which we call the fight or flight. And that was, you know, Walter Cannon kind of conceived this idea that we're either relaxed or we're kind of in this state of excitement, this fight or flight response. And that's really what we call the sympathetic nervous system. And that means the engine is running. We're, we're you know, redlining the engine. We are obviously finding a way to survive by either confronting that stressor or removing ourselves from the stressor, hence the word fight or flight. And so generally we can look at this as we kind of operate not at either extremes, but somewhere in between, or we could be at those extremes. And so the way it works is that generally we spend most of our day in this under the dominance of the parasympathetic nervous system that controls our heart rate. It helps control our breathing. It keeps us in a nice relaxed state. And that's where we want to spend most of the day. And anytime we perceive a stress, the little red flags go up and the body says, I need to fight a flight. I need to confront the stressor. I need to remove myself from the stressor. And so we activate, we switch to the dominance of the sympathetic nervous system. So that's initially activated through the nervous system and then the hormonal system takes over. It's kind of like a one-two punch. It's like passing the baton because the hormonal system is slow at adapting. It could take minutes to hours before a hormone gets released, whereas the nervous system can act in fractions of a second. And so when we talk about epinephrine and cortisol, all those stress hormones, they're manifested out of the sympathetic nervous system getting turned on. And eventually the, nerve, the, hormonal, the hormones get released and they help sustain that stress response until that stress goes away. And then we're supposed to return back to the dominance of the parasympathetic nervous system. But what's interesting is some people think of it as like a, a light switch where it's on and off. And it's not actually that way. Your heart rate, for mm. example, right? I'll kind of close on this comment on it. Your heart rate left to its own devices. You know, your heart rate has what we call a pacemaker, you know, the SA node. Mm -hmm. If you were just looking at your heart rate, the human adult heart rate beating, it beats actually about 100 times a minute. But yet right now, I would suspect your heart rate's in the low 60s. Yeah. So how is it that your heart rate is lower than 100 beats a minute? It's because you have the dominance of the sympathetic nervous system that is slowing down your heart rate. And so when you start getting into a stress response with your heart rate climbing back up to about 100, that's actually not so much the sympathetic nervous system turning on. It's actually the parasympathetic nervous system having less dominance. And then once we get to about 100, any further elevations in your heart rate are generally attributed to the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. That could take you all the way up to, we've seen the heart rates well over the 200s. So it's kind of like I always use the analogy of a light switch with a dimmer, like a dim switch in between. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how we live our lives. We just kind of fluctuate whether we're constantly altering the dimming. We just want to spend more time with a dim switch really low. That would be the healthiest. So, so I would say that, uh, well, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, this is Fabio Camana that we're talking to right now. And we're getting into a little bit about uh, physiology, physiology in the body. So um, when we exercise, so we hear about these stressors that put us in a continual state of stress, right? So, but they're, they're like micro stressors. Um, and we hear that sometimes people talk about the society is in a continual sympathetic state. So parasympathetic is the calming, sympathetic is the, the elevated state. So it, what are, is, is that true? I mean, are people being inundated with a bunch of little micro stresses that are causing them to potentially be 
sympathetic dominant or that kind of fight flight freeze dominance absolutely i agree with yeah. you there remember you know stress think of this use this example here you go to the gym and your heart rate will elevate your blood pressure will elevate your sweat rate will go up Mm-hmm. Let's say you open up your app and your bank account has been hacked and there's no money left in your bank account. What do you think is going to happen to your heart rate, your blood pressure, and your sweat rate? All the above. <laughs> yeah. so, exactly. So the idea here is the stress response manifests itself physiologically, but it's simply the, the origin of the stress is basically nonspecific. In other words, stress can manifest itself in any form, shape, or manner, right? It's just how mm. once we perceive it, if the amygdala, which is the kind of the emotional part of our brain, senses this is potentially life-threatening or we have a perception that this is something that we have to deal with and it's, it creates a little bit of level of anxiety or arousal, then we need to activate that sympathetic nervous system. But here's what's happened. You know, if you think about our ancestors, you know, they had a stressful event, right? You know, a saber-toothed tiger kind of came into their cave and they fought to the death and they survived. Granted, that's a very intense, you know, about uh, stress, but then what followed was a long period of recovery, and that's the most important thing. You know, and um, there's several researchers at Stanford that have said stress ordinarily is not going to kill the human body. The inability to recover from stress is becoming our demise, right? That's the critical mm. point. So following a stress response, there's supposed to be time to not only restore homeostasis, but maybe even allow for some adaptation. And this is where we talk about, you know, in our new... Um, physique and conditioning certification. We talk about the stimulus recovery adaptation curve, right? And following every stimulus of training, we need time to recover. So we avoid overtraining and we can get that adaptation. Well, our ancestors had a simple life, right? Hard as it was, they had a stressor, but then there was long periods of recovery, hopefully, and then there was another stressor. Now, our lives today are not like that anymore. You know, think about it. You wake up, you oversleep. You're late for work, so you're stuck in a commute because there's an accident, right? You get to work, your boss is screaming at you. You you finally get back to your desk. You're getting a moment to breathe. You get a phone call. Your kid's got lice. You got to go pick up your kid. I mean, it's just it never stops. <laughs> it's a barrage. Right? Yeah. And that's the problem that we're faced with today is that we just don't have a reprieve from the yeah. constant attack of stress. Even if they're small, like you said, micro stress bouts, it's like a dog pile. They just accumulate, and what we're not getting is the opportunity to have that recovery. And that's what we need. And that's why, you know, you, you, you're an expert on this, why recovery is such an important part of our lives, because that allows the body to restore homeostasis and, if anything, enjoy a little adaptation. But we need to have that. And if we're not having that, unfortunately, we're going to head, we're going to take this the wrong direction. Is it true also, Fabio, that, um, that hormones are released into the bloodstream. So it's not just a matter of me talking myself off the ledge if I'm stressed out, but that gets uh, into the bloodstream. So say some of the scary event happens, you almost get hit by a car and your heart rate still is elevated, but like 20 minutes later, you're still kind of freaking out and you're, you're still elevated. It's not because you haven't talked yourself down from the event, the event's over but that's been released into the bloodstream. So it's not like an electrical signal from the brain that you can shift gears or turn off or whatever. Like it's in your body. That's, that's still circulating and that has to be circulated out before you can actually calm down. Is that, is there truth to that? Absolute truth to that. So if you want to do a quick comparison, you know, people say, what are there some similarities between the nervous system and the hormonal system? Yeah. They're both, they're both communication systems. Mm-hmm. What they do in their own unique way, one through chemical messengers, the other one through electrical signals, is they communicate 
information from one point to another to elicit a necessary response. Mm -hmm. The difference is, is that the nerve system is very rapid acting. A nerve impulse can travel at a rate of about you know, 100 to 120 meters a second. That's about 400 feet a second. So a nerve impulse can travel in fractions of a second. The problem with the nerve system is that it's very specific. In other words, the nerve goes from point A to point B. So if you want to have a system-wide, systematic, a systemic response, you have to activate multiple nerves. But it's also very energy efficient because every time you send a nerve impulse, there is a period right after the nerve impulse goes where we have to regenerate the electrical charge, we call it polarity or resting membrane potential, before we can send a, a subsequent impulses. And that all takes energy, right? We've got to move ions, sodium and potassium ions. And that takes a lot of energy. So the nervous system, to be honest with you, is rapid acting, but it's kind of energy inefficient. So we have a second communication system, which is the hormonal system. Hormones can be elevated within minutes. They might even take hours, like IGF-1 post-exercise might not be elevated for several hours post-exercise. But ordinarily, mm. it takes a few minutes for the hormones to get either manufactured or released and put into circulation. The beauty of the hormonal system is that it's systemic. You put it in the blood, it goes everywhere. And yeah. as long as it's in circulation and binding to receptors, you're getting the effect you want. So it's very energy efficient. So they work as a complement. It's kind of like the nerve system turns on the response and then it hands the baton over to the hormonal system like that, that carries on that response indefinitely, right? Hopefully not indefinitely, but you know, for, that, for that period of time. So theoretically, you're absolutely right. As you said, you might have that perception of stress that activates the sympathetic nervous system that maybe after a minute or two activates the hormonal system to release those stress hormones. But then you're right, they're in circulation. And a hormone like insulin, for example, or you know, cortisol, they have to be broken down. They have to be removed out of the blood and broken down. And these could take hours. Like insulin may remain in circulation for an hour after it's been released and finally get absorbed back out of circulation. So yes, like you said, you don't just, you know, you have that road rage episode or that stressful event. It doesn't just go away like a light switch. It is going to, you're going to slowly gradually, you know, gradually, you know, sort of calm yourself down. But those hormones will stay in circulation for a, you know, longer period of time, long after the stress has been removed. And we're hoping that's the same thing for the uh, parasympathetic hormones as well, right? Like we, that, that we can maintain our cool after a bout of meditation or when people go for a run and clear their head and things like that, then we get to enjoy how that feels for a little while after it's over. Yep, that's exactly right. Very good. I like it. Um, Fabio Camana, I want to say thank you so much for being here. I, I want to be respectful of your time, but if there's anything else that you would like to leave our certified personal trainers here with, then please share some words of wisdom with us. You know, I think, Rick, you know, given the theme that we've talked about today, you know, obviously barring the first one on the, on incident, just talking about the stress response, I think, you know, I think as, as uh, you know, practitioners, I think we can become great messengers at helping people start to realize two things. Number one, that stress is not necessarily the enemy. You know, stress in moderation is actually a very healthy thing. And I think, I think the conversation can be started where, you know, we can talk about stress being a mental perception and maybe helping our clients or our, you know, athletes or whomever we're working with by kind of exploring what their day looks like. And if we find, like you talked about earlier, these little micro sessions of stress that are kind of dogpiling on top of each other, they may not be intense individually, but aggregated together, they can become problematic. So I think it's very important for a, a, a NASM CPT 
or any, you know, other credentialed, uh, you know, individual to really explore what the entire day looks like. The kind of, let's call it the stress load looks like on a per, in a person's day. And find ways to do what? To kind of deload, kind of find ways to have those little moments where they can, you know, self-talk themselves, you know, uh, you know, maybe self-evaluate, maybe they've got some irrational thoughts going on, maybe it's just they need to do some breathing, some relaxation techniques. Because if we can find periods through the day where we can kind of turn the switch off, yeah, then we can be so much healthier and we can, you know, not only be more productive in our day, but we can achieve all our health and fitness goals more effectively. So I think it's a conversation that all practitioners should think about that their value has to expand beyond the brick and mortar of the time that they're just spending with their club. Share with them, impart your wisdom to help them manage their stress through the day so they can be a better, healthier person. I love the sound of that. Fabio, thank you so much. I appreciate you being here today and sharing your words of wisdom with us. Uh, it, I know that you're not on social really, but if people wanted to learn more about you, wanted to reach out to you, is there a way that they could connect with you? You know, NASM is the best place. Yeah, I've kind of, you know, with all the things going on in my life, I've kind of become less present on social media. Occasionally I post a few things, but, you know, on sort of Facebook. But for the most part, it would be, you know, just through me writing for NASM or, you know, kind of podcasts like this, things of that nature. But I would say look at NASM first. Perfect. Perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, Fabio Kamana, thank you so much for being here. And thank Great. you for listening and being here present for this podcast. If you want to reach out to me, uh, you have something you want to share with me, you have uh, a topic that you'd like to hear about, then you can hit me up on Instagram at dr.rickritchie, or you can email me at rick.ritchie at nasm.org. Thanks for being here. Y'all keep inspiring people to fitness. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast.